Today's talk is entitled The Three Characteristics of Existence. The Buddha kept reminding us of these three characteristics of, of our lives, really. And, and they are, as some of you may know, in the Pali word, Pali is the language of the Buddha, the anicca, which means impermanence, anatta, which means non-self, and dukkha, which is often translated for suffering. Now, by constantly reminding us of that, the intention of the Buddha was not to construct a philosophical system around existence. Actually, the word he used for existence was bhava, which, which really means uh, um, our actual experience in life. So the three characteristics of our actual experience in life, that's a better translation. Why should the Buddha need to remind us of this characteristics of our existence, of our life, if we should be the first ones to know, right? We don't need somebody else to tell us. And yet, we do. Because this is peculiarity about these three characteristics. Major, so the major aspects of our life, and we insist in ignoring them. We insist in being in denial of them. Should that be? Why should we have so much difficulty in accepting that things are impermanent, uh, perhaps I understand difficulty of understanding that we are impermanent. It's, it's difficult. And to, to allow ourselves to be in pain sometimes. No? We, we do not. Because we have constructed for ourselves a universe. And in this universe that we constructed for ourselves, these three characteristics manifest themselves as a sense of loss. And loss meaning something negative, something we don't want. Basically, I'll go down the list again of the characteristics. Anicca, the impermanence, or perhaps a better translation, the unreliability of all that we come in contact with. Then there's an atom, our own impermanence, our own mortality. And from those two follows, from Anicca and Anatta, follows dukkha, follows suffering because we are reluctant to accept the other two. So we suffer. So 
I take a little time to go over these characteristics in, in some detail, some, some, so to give them some reality to them, not, not ideas, but how, what is this? What is this that starts with Anicca? Impermanence. Or as I said, the more accurate translation, un unreliability, undependability, inconstancy that everything that we come in contact with. We, we become quite wary that the items surrounding us are not permanent, are short-lived, are inconstant. Here today, gone tomorrow. Doesn't sound good. Objects, simple objects get lost, stolen, forgotten somewhere. They deteriorate, they eventually come out, you know. And people, people are worse, you know. Really, they, they keep getting into a life and then getting out by separation, by death, okay. by animosity. And, and even when they continue to hang around, very often they change. This guy is not the same guy that I met 20 years ago. I mean, good grief. And yet, of course, as the saying goes, we're married or whatever it is till death do us part. Again, trying to maintain our opposition to impermanence. And so we have to put up with him or with her. We may resign ourselves to that, but, you know, but grinning and bearing a situation is very different from accepting it from the heart. We just put up with it. So, what are, what are the obvious ways in which we react to impermanence? The main one, the most important one, is that afraid of the impermanence of something, we cling to that. We hold on tightly to that. We hold on to it with dear life, whether it's a thing, a person, a situation, even be an ideology. When we, we see that things deteriorate anyway, whether physically or psychologically, we, we try to repair what's deteriorated. Or alternatively, we rush to replace it. So, holding on first. It's a, a, an attempt to prevent things from changing. Because it's not that we embrace that person or the thing or the cause or whatever. We, 
we hold it tightly in fear of that it, he, she may go. And we try to preserve the situation, the item, the person, and its condition right now. If it's our children, we don't want them to grow up, do we? I mean, we say, okay, sure. But wasn't it much nicer when we could tell them what to do? Partners, they keep changing, they evolve. In fact, life isn't unfolding, but do we like that? Well, we, we have a, a great resistance to it. You know, I'm, I'm not very much a person for photography, but I can surrounded by people who take photographs. My grandchildren, for instance, wow. They get into any situation with these digital cameras, you know. And my reckoning is that in a few months, they take thousands and thousands of pictures. The memory of those cameras, I don't know what's the limit, but uh, uh, surely they reach the limit. And, and no person could possibly re review those pictures. It takes a month of full time looking at pictures to see them again. I can see it, I understand it. It's a desperate attempt to fix this moment and the next moment and the next moment. You know, not to let things flow. And, and there is some comfort in the thought that, hey, my camera has this moment stored up in its memory. It serves no purpose, except it, it will ally our fears of this impermanence eroding everything. To, to freeze the situation. If, if that kind of fixing doesn't work, then, then we do the other fixing, the repair, which certainly is very natural, you know. I mean, many things need and ought to be repaired. Very recently, the roof of our house had to be changed because it was leaky and just... Uh, the house could be corroded by the water if we didn't do something. That's very appropriate. But more often than not, our urge to repair, the urge comes from the looks of things. We don't want things to look worn out. So that there's no suspicion that the house is 
old as it is old. And of course, when all this, you know, redecorating the house or whatever, or in personal relations, sending a polite note to that person, see if we can cover up our differences somehow, which may be appropriate at times, sure. But it's this, this facelift aspect that is problematic because it only tries to avoid impermanence. And when none of this works, we cannot hold on, we cannot repair to make everything look as it used to, then quickly replace it. Buy a new car, get a new partner, new pair of shoes, whatever. And again, it's maybe quite appropriate to buy a new car, get a new partner, but the problem is in the urgency. The much of the urgency comes from the fear of being in a gap without the usual support of the known. The fear of the inconstancy of things. All this about impermanence in general, bit of all the forms of impermanence, the one that, that's really grievous and difficult to deal with, is the impermanence of ourselves. What I mentioned before, the anatta. The fact that we're not immortal. That there is no fixed entity self there to stay for good. And, and we try to deal with anatta, try to cover up anatta in ways similar to the ways how we cover impermanence. Of course, try to hold on to ourselves for dear life, as it were, forgive the pun, <laughs> um, may sound a bit absurd, but that you know, there are several thousand bodies in various places, in particular in the U.S., frozen in liquid nitrogen. People who write before dying in their will, they specify that the bodies be put in liquid nitrogen, what's called technically cryogenically preserved, until somebody discovers a cure for death. <laughs> Basically, well, at least for the death that was coming up to them. But again, if it's going to be helpful at all, it has to be that somebody discovers a way to make humans immortal. And hopefully the liquid nitrogen will hold on until then. 
I mean, it's pretty absurd, but it's on them. It's a, it's a big business. So, barring cryonics, another way of dealing with impermanence, like uh, with impermanence you know, with, of ourselves, is try to repair our bodies. And of course, this is eminently appropriate. Yes, sure. And I just mentioned I had uh, cataract operations. My, my vision was going and suddenly it survived and beautiful. I mean, I, you look so different from those of you who I knew before. <laughs> I see more wrinkles, of course. <laughs> I just have to get good eyeglasses for reading. That's a, a little detail, but because it happened just a few weeks ago. I mean, of course, it's very appropriate to to repair of bodies naturally, or or our minds uh, through the work of psychology. Absolutely. But again, the problem is that very often this repair process is addressing not the real well-being of the body, but the appearance of the body. It's a facelift that we go for, literally a facelift for ourselves. An, an attempt to cover up the inevitable process of aging. You know, you can, almost anywhere nowadays, you can buy these anti-aging creams and lotions and all kinds of things. And I'm sure I'm not up to date on that market. The, the one thing that I discovered the other day, somebody showed to my partner um, a picture of a common friend, and she says, wow, this must be an old picture. No, no, I took it to, two weeks ago. But you know, there's, there's a button in my camera, he says to Raquel. There's a button, you press this button, and it erases your wrinkles. <laughs> Do you know that? No. Wow. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> in fact, it, it, I've been thinking about that so much, it inspired me. And maybe some of you with technical ability can can help me on this. Inspired me. Why don't we create a digital mirror with all kinds of knobs that you can rotate to adjust your image? Wrinkles? Gone. No wrinkles. I mean, colors, whatever. Gone. Um, uh, color of the hair. Change it. Um, I have a rather small chin. You know, you could do with a little bit widening. It's not just a matter of you, but, but I look a little young. I mean, look at these spots I have. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's obvious I'm deteriorating, but the mirror could take it away. And I, I believe I'm, you know, in a different world. It can have a psychological uplift somehow. And, of course, continue to live 
in the life of who I think I am. Okay, but so much then for anatta, then holding on, cryonics really, a bit too far-fetched, uh, facelift and all that is fine, we do them, a bit too much perhaps, but what's the ultimate thing? Can we, can we replace ourselves? Well, you know, in our minds you can, we can, by believing in, in fact, that there is a fixed something, a transcendent identity, what in many religions is called the soul that survives, that doesn't die. And through that ideology, we can believe at least that even when we die, we are preserved in a different form. We are replaced by our soul that goes floating around somehow, whatever, whatever form you give to this legend. In Sanskrit, which is the traditional Indian language, the word for soul is Atman. The word Anatta in Pali, which is the language of the Buddha in the area of India where he lived, the word Anatta is derived from Atman. An means no, and Atta is the same as Atman, is soul. So, what the Buddha was teaching by teaching Anatta, forget about a soul that is going to live forever and is going to be doing your bidding somehow. And anyways, the appeal of the belief in the soul is very understandable, of course. Naturally. And I'm, I'm not trying to prove or disprove anything, and I don't think the Buddha was interested in that either. But, but what the Buddha was trying to do, what I'm trying to do, is let's not use any of these escape routes, including not use the soul as a escape route. And let's face the fact of our, of our own impermanence. You know, I'm 82 years old, and it's important that I know that I have a very limited, measurable time left. And that I, if that brings me pain, then I sit with that pain. <laughs> And I get beyond it somehow, rather than trying to cover it up. And so, this is the third characteristic. So, I talked about anicca, impermanence, I talked about anatta, non-self, and now I'm talking about the pain, dukkha. Which, which again is closely connected with anicca and anatta. 
is the profound dissatisfaction of the thanks, fact that things are impermanent, both unreliable and non-self. And just as our basic strategy in dealing with anicca and anatta was one of denial, of pretending that they do not occur or covering them up, we do the same thing with dukkha. We try to hide our pain somewhere. We pretend. Well, okay, I'm okay, okay, I'm not suffering. He's fine, I'm not suffering. It doesn't work. The problem is not in anything being as it is, including anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Pain, how, how can we avoid pain in, in so many ways? so many levels. The problem is not in, as I said, in things being as they are, but in us denying it, in us being devast devastated because we assume that this should not be happening to me. How can we turn this around? How can we bring ourselves to learn the art of losing? Whoops. Here's what a, a poet called Elizabeth Bishop says, reading a part of a poem of her. She says, The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that the loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing Father, losing faster places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of this will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last and next to last of three loft houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Well, isn't uh, Elizabeth Bishop a bit uh, glib about this? Uh, maybe, the way she puts it. I mean, it's, it's nicely said. I resonate with it. It's uh, humorous. It's not terribly transformative. How can we bring some more conviction to this admonition? Well, I spent most of my time as a scientist before I started to meditate. I was a scientist and I'm totally dedicated. Also, 
experimental mode still has a fair amount of appeal to me. So let me try a little experiment with you. Uh, how can we set up an experiment to check out this out of losing? I'm going to use a puzzle. A puzzle that was very famous over a hundred years ago. There was a man called Sam Lloyd who created it. And he had a column in a very important paper in New York at the time, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. You know? Hey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And on the last Saturday of May, 1896, from on the front of the offices of the Daily Eagle on Washington Street there across the river in Brooklyn, uh, this puzzle was hanged on display, a large so model of it. And a large, a huge crowd gathered in front of it. The puzzle was very famous. The paper says, I did some research on that. It's hard to believe, but that's what they say. They said they sold 10 million copies. So, let me show you the puzzle. Uh, it's a little small, so I'm, I'm not 100% sure that uh, you can see it from where you are. If you wish to, can you see it from there? It's a little, do you want to, to move over? Do you want to get closer? <laughs> uh, I don't know, uh, also I'll describe it so that people who get the recording of this also can understand what I'm talking about. There's a, a large board, well, in the real thing was a large board, a fixed board. And on that board, there's a, a rotary, a smaller board, circular board. And straddling the two boards, there's a whole bunch of figures, actually figures of Chinamen. Or whatever, that could also be discussed, but anyway. The, in this particular figures, you can see there's 12 Chinamen. Let me see. Let's start from here so I don't miscount. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 10, 11, ah, no, 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 I'm going to, back. let me try again. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. When this puzzle was set up uh, 110 years ago, every, mo every minute 
the puzzle would rotate one notch. I have those clips to indicate the position, so I have to hold it. Whoops. Ay, ay, ay. Something is amiss here. I'll have to find There it is. In this new position, let's count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Where did the Chinaman come from? Or if I move it back to the other position, where did it disappear? Oh, which figure disappeared? This is a very intriguing thing. The Daily Eagle set up the prize for whoever could answer that question. Which Chinaman disappears and where did it go? It's, it's important to not to dismiss our puzzlement about this puzzle. It's real, and I, when I was a scientist, I, I was deeply worried by this. <laughs> deeply worried. I spent days trying to figure it out. Couldn't. Before I try to answer this, let me go back not just a uh, hundred years, not just one century, but 25 centuries. Go back to the Buddha. He would have loved this puzzle, but it never occurred to him. But he talked in very similar terms. See, he reminded us that we are just an aggregate, each one of us here, an aggregate of different aspects. He would, uh, to talk about the aggregates, in fact, he would use uh, seeds, and he'd put piles of seeds representing each person. Actually, the teaching about the aggregates was a little more complicated. Some of you may know about it. Each person was represented by five aggregates, five little pies. One representing the body, four representing mental aspects. But the, the subdivision in the five aggregates is not relevant to my argument here. It just, what's important is that if, if we make a pile of my aggregates and a pile of your aggregates, you know, they're not very different piles. And, and aspects of you and aspects of me can, can get mixed up kind of thing. We, we pick up things from each other. 
are apart from each other. So, uh, now back to the puzzle. In the language of the Buddha, the puzzle is so easy to understand. Each one of those guys there, Chinamen, for whatever reason, is an aggregate of lines, that's all. Why should the aggregates of line remain the same number of piles when you shift them completely? There's absolutely no reason why to expect that necessarily as we do this and we have 13 we do that and we have 12 I mean that they have to be the same number of figures it's only when we focus on the figure and we entify the figure we create a separate entity of each figure that we are in trouble but if we relax this obsession with thing, thingifying, entifying the Chinamen. They're just aggregates of lines, that's all. You rearrange it, you get a different solution. No big deal. No big deal. If we are ready to let go of the insistence of the propensity of mind to, to separate each figure, solid and in, individual, individual cannot be divided. If we, if we let go of that, then the problem is solved. There was no problem, there is no problem. But, but it's important, anyway, to catch the mind in the act of creating the problem and then let go of the problem. Likewise, we need to catch the mind in, in the overall denial, not just here in the puzzle, but overall in the denial of impermanence and non-self. And in the denial, uh, that is rather avoidant of suffering, then and only then can we make peace with how our lives are. Disregarding these difficulties that we have, poo-pooing this difficulty doesn't accomplish anything. We need to spend time focusing our attention on impermanence, and very preferable in the course of practice, meditation, become acquainted with our what our minds are used to do with it, and then, and only then, will we understand the alternative. We need to go into the pain caused by the prospect of any loss including the prospect of our own death before we can transcend it, before we can 
let go of it. And that is very much what we do as a practice. That is very much the essence of the practice. We focus the mind and we explore what it's like to let experience come and experience go. And then, of course, we hit ourselves against the resistance to that. All the difficulties in sitting and being present have to do with that. And, and the resistance, it's also part of the learning. Okay, we feel the resistance, we feel tightening up. I can't do this. This is crazy, the teacher's sitting there. What do you think he is? I mean, I really want to go running around, whatever. Not sitting here in misery. You know, seeing my breath come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go. It's too much. We need to, to recognize that. We need to be with that resistance too. Open to it. And so the practice is going back and forth between resisting it and opening up. Resisting and opening up. Contraction and letting go. And in that, we discover we have a choice. So let's sit for a couple of minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.